Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and the festival is over, but this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Julian Higgins, a filmmaker whose credits include the 2004 feature Mending Wall, episodes of the television series House and Guidance, and several short films, including an adaptation of James Lee Burke's short story Winter Light that he's now expanded into a feature of its own, God's Country. It stars Tandy Wayne Newton as a retired academic drawn into a confrontation with trespassers on her remote Montana property. It's now playing in the U.S., and it opens this Friday, September 23rd, in Toronto at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, where Julian and co-star Joris Yarsky will be joining me to introduce the 7.15 p.m. screening and stay for a Q&A afterwards. Julian picked Loveless, Andres Jagensed's 2017 drama about a divorcing couple, Zhenya and Boris, played respectively by Mariana Spivak and Alexei Rosen, who are so caught up in their mutual loathing that they don't even notice when their 12-year-old son, played by Matt Novikov, disappears. That's the plot, but like all of Zhyagintsev's cinema, it's about so much more than the story in front of the camera. This is someone else's movie. I, I, I love this filmmaker, Andres Vyagensev. Um, he's done five films, The Return, The Banishment, Elena, uh, Leviathan, and Loveless in order. Um, and that's over about the last 20 years. And I, I just want to say, like, Zvyaginsev is, uh, his film, The Return, which was his first feature, I saw at a moment in my life when I was um, getting into filmmaking. And I don't think I would be the filmmaker that I am without seeing The Return, because it showed me the way of, like, the kinds of movies that I wanted to do uh, and how they could be done really well. And so that's why I'm so passionate about him. Um, Loveless, I think I, I would choose, even though it's really t- difficult for me to pick one. <laughs> Loveless, I would choose because I just think it is uh, so extraordinarily well executed from the writing to the production itself, the way it's edited, the music, like everything about it is just absolutely top notch. And it's also just a devastating political story in addition to being a very well you know very compelling well dramatized human story what i love about zvi against is his just absolutely savage social criticism that he smuggles into his movies and loveless i think is the most successful of all five movies in that regard I did not see him until I rather, I think I saw the return in pieces for whatever reason. I, I didn't cover it that year at the film festival and, and took a while to catch up to it. It wasn't until Leviathan that I had the time to sit in one of his movies from beginning to end. And it just, it just bowled me over. I, um, and I went back and I caught up and, and did all the things you're supposed to do, but it's just so, it was so perfectly timed as well because the mayor in Leviathan, Mayor Mayor, looks and acts like Rob Ford, who was the Toronto mayor who was leaving office. He left office during that, that TIFF actually, because he was diagnosed with cancer the, a couple of weeks before his reelection campaign was supposed to get underway. So there was this whole thing where seeing him on the screen like that and confronting this, this smaller, pettier version of, of the monster that had been ravaging my life for four years and, and just, uh, making a, a ruin of, of my city was a remarkably personal entry point into the film. And then to kind of walk it back and realize that it's like the things that he's saying about the, the Soviet Union, sorry, the things that the filmmaker is saying about the Soviet Union recovering from communism and becoming whatever it is it is now. And this is you know, almost 10 years ago. 
was was stunning. And then Loveless came along and just laid me out because I'm a child of divorce. My parents finally split when I was 10, but they had a trial separation before when I was really young. And I really don't have any happy memories of it. And to catapult people into the movie, there is a shot where someone goes into a bathroom, has a moment, and then leaves with the door closing behind them. And the the, the child is revealed to have been behind the door the whole time, his face in a silent scream that just feels like it pulls right out of the ring somehow. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a devastating moment because up to that, I would say that's about maybe eight minutes into the movie. Yeah. And up to that moment, the drama has been pretty um, sort of familiar territory. And I think very deliberately, you know? Right, like where he's just sort of steering us into that. that yeah, like he, he, he's setting up a, a kind of somewhat familiar, and I think very deliberately. Like I, I do think a lot now in my own movies about the audience's expectations, obviously. And, uh, and how you can sort of use the expectations that you sort of assume as the filmmaker to your advantage. And in his, uh, you know, Loveless, I mean, obviously it's not a coincidence because we've seen his other movies. We know that he is such a deliberate and uh, disciplined filmmaker. Um, by the time you get to Loveless, you know that if there's a kind of a small slice of life, couple arguing kind of thing that seems a little bit like, okay, yeah, this is the stuff of independent films, you know, <laughs> people who hate each other getting divorced, like, sure. and then suddenly you have this, this child whose psychology and um, the damage that's being done to him is visible without any words or anything. And it's so extreme all of a sudden, like the, the anguish on this kid's face is so extreme and he's, he's silencing himself. So he's not, understood to be a witness but it's so agonizing and that's that's just him it's just a haymaker right at the beginning of the movie yeah i and i've been that child like it is it's instantly plugged me into all this stuff that i hadn't thought about in 40 years about witnessing the dissolution of my parents marriage and it it's symbolic of so much in the film because the rest of the movie will be about not speaking about what they've put this kid through and then once he disappears, turning his absence into another reason they should never see each other again. I mean, that, that there is this sort of, um, it's, it's not a maxim exactly, but there is a, a general belief that most relationships don't survive the disappearance or death of a child, that, that parents can't see each other uh, without seeing the missing child. But here, they already hate each other so much and it's already underway that his disappearance just becomes another inconvenience to that dissolution. And it's well, just yeah, horrible. And it's fascinating because the first hour or so of the movie, um, essentially just for the, you know, listeners, the movie starts with the kid coming home from school and then it kind of cuts to that evening and the parents are fighting. And then you, we, we have the moment we just talked about. And then the next morning the kid goes to school and that's the last you see the kid in the film. And the, you know, the story is about, I mean, it's actually kind of a high concept uh, log line, essentially. It's, it's, you know, the parents of a child who disappears, uh, you know, who are in the middle of a divorce, have to work together to try to find their missing son, you know? It sounds like a movie that would be made in America and probably, you know, I mean, not end the way this one does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, 
you know, the first hour of it, the kid goes to school and then there's a, I would say the midpoint is when we learn that the child is missing. So for the first hour of the movie, you're watching these parents who are living totally separately now. And like, they both have other relationships and, you know, the, 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 the husband is, you know, his new lover is pregnant and they're engaged, you know, it's very like, we're very deep into the separation, you know, Hmm. and uh, you're just kind of watching their lives and sort of, you don't know as the viewer yet that the child is missing. So you're just kind of watching their lives and getting very involved in their lives. And then the second half of the movie just dismantles their selfishness, you know, their, their complete lack of interest in the child's life. Uh, and, and they're, they're each trying to push responsibility for the child onto the other person. So it's, it, and, and once again, you don't know that that's, that's what the filmmaker is doing to you because he's not showing you that the kid is missing yet. So you become invested in their lives and the intricacies of their relationship and all that stuff. And then you also have to reevaluate your relationship to that. And that to me is where it becomes the political aspect of it. Because, you know, you have two generations and the younger generation is being um, just uh, damaged irreversibly by the behavior of the older generation, which, you know, and, and, uh, uh, that is something Zviginsev deals with in all his movies. You know, is this is this is what has been inherited in Russia from the older generations, and this question of whether there there is a you know a future for Russia. And I think it's just incredible that he's able to make such a devastating film <laughs> within like under Putin's Russia. I mean, that's another part thing that I admire about this filmmaker. Yeah, both Loveless and Leviathan are commentaries without drawing direct lines, which I find absolutely fascinating, given how actively policed so much opinion is, right? The, the, the sense in Leviathan that you're watching somebody lay out the progression of monsters, I guess, is the only way I can explain it. The, the mayor is lumbering past this giant corpse that no one can really identify or even understand. He just gradually is revealed to be the latest monster that everyone has to deal with and he'll go and they'll some there'll be someone else and that feels like the succession of of leaders but it's so deftly rendered that someone who was perhaps obsessed with his own image wouldn't see himself in it because like well that guy's awful i'm not awful i'm just i i have an image that i maintain and then in, in loveless it's even more blunt right because a child disappears and there's no structure in place that really cares and it, yeah, as you say, it's about an entire generation being abandoned. Yeah. But it's also about everyone pretending that they're moving forward while yeah. giving up. Well, on I was going to say, it, it mixes in a critique of capitalism as well. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's like, it's, uh, and Loveless, I think, and Leviathan have a lot in common. They're all, it's almost like the Andres Vigensev cinematic universe, you know? <laughs> and, uh, Small you town, know, big town, yeah. Yeah, and and but the thing is, like, the thing that I saw when I watched The Return, when I was had just graduated from high school and like knew I wanted to be a director, but I kind of hadn't seen a movie that did exactly what I was aspiring to do. What The Return does, and it's what Zviyagensev does in general, is it's mythic storytelling. It's almost fairy tale, like it, and that's why you know you were talking about Rob Ford, but I thought you were going to be talking about Donald Trump. You know, yeah, it's in there because when because when you have the the sort of it's functioning as a 
uh, on a level of metaphor that that as a fairy tale or a parable or a myth would function to kind of teach us about how humanity operates on a fundamental level. That he he does that better than almost any other filmmaker I can think of, and that's what I want to do. <laughs> so when I saw his movies, I just it unlocked that as a as a as a form to pursue. And that's why they continue to work, you know, that the, anybody in any uh, culture could watch Leviathan and feel that it's about their culture, I feel, because it's not about a specific, uh, you know, I mean, yes, it, it, if you could watch it and be like, oh, yeah, it's about modern Russia, but it's actually about hum- human beings and the human condition and these cycles that have, you know, that repeat themselves all down through the ages, you know, and that's why those movies will stand the test of time and be relevant no matter who you are. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's the the necessity to be just vague enough that he doesn't come under fire from specific local authority makes it, it's, it doesn't strip the meaning away. The meaning remains, but it strips the the imagery, the iconography, the, the, like the really specific stuff. The specificity of Moscow in 2012, for example, which I, I still don't fully get the decision to set Loveless five years earlier than it was made. I, I was trying to figure out if there's a connection, if there's some specific thing he's trying to avoid. But I think it's just that the rot wasn't that bad then. Like maybe mm-hmm. in 2017, um, Alicia's disappearance would take even longer to be noticed. Maybe that's the point, that there's still a chance. You could still hope. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and most of the time, you know, Loveless, I don't, I think it's a, it's some kind of northern... I think there's some workers in it that are, uh, I want to say they're from Tajikistan or something like that. Like there's some, it's some, it's not like a recognizable, none of his films are set in like a sort of recognizable Russian city. It's all sort of city with a capital C or countryside, you know, Leviathan, these are mythic places. They don't really exist. They, they exist only to serve the way a fairy tale story would exist, you know, like, it's the kingdom. It's not, you know, Spain and, you know, 1650. Uh, and, you know, so the locations, I mean, there's so many places we could go with this conversation, <laughs> but like, I, like things that I feel are outstanding that are worth discussing the performances always. Uh, but locations I think are the secret heroes of his films. I mean, the locations contain the entire story, the abandonment, of principle the abandonment of uh sort of human needs (laughs) uh a lot of leviathan and loveless takes place and the return for sure um take place in these sort of abandoned structures Mm -hmm. that don't seem to be in use at all and you kind of wonder what they used to be uh there's the kind of a sense of like everyone's sort of squatting in their in the country that they live in you know like they're they're almost uh transient in a way and um that everything has just been abandoned and betrayed and left to rust you know and um and that's also you know i think part of what makes it existential is the landscapes and the um you know the structures that he's putting on camera it's just uh you can't help when it's this you know it's the northern sea in siberia or whatever in in um, leviathan you can't help but feel like remember how inconsequential all these human struggles are, you know, 
the mayor who wants to tear down this guy's house to build a church. None of that matters. You know, yeah. the ocean is still crashing on the rocks. There's still whales that will live, you know, hundreds of years, you know, anyway, in Leviathan, uh, um, there's a sequence towards the end where they're look, there's a search party, which is one of the more haunting sequences I've seen in recent years where, you know, the sort of uh, volunteer uh, search parties going out through the woods and they kind of work their way through this, a structure that really calls to mind Chernobyl. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to like really put my finger on it, but like there's a very, there's an emphasis of a giant uh, dilapidated satellite dish. And like, it just feels like this sort of power plant structure. Yeah. It's a big hollow space. Yeah, huge hollow spaces, and the photograph, the, the the locations within the space, these sort of um, absolutely blown up kind of conference rooms and stuff like that. It just feels like if you watch Chernobyl, like it, it, the the locations are so similar, and that's what I mean. It's like that's how he's doing it. It makes you create the association in your head. He's not ever spelling it out. He doesn't say, "Look at." Putin's Russia. Here's how this happened. And that's how it's affecting these people. He's just putting some images in your head that make your brain do the, do the work. I don't know if he intended it to look like Chernobyl, but that's what, you know, it, it evoked that for me. And then I started thinking about that, that, that became a layer of the story for me. I just think that kind of filmmaking is so sophisticated and so hard to do. And he just consistently does that. it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe the odd streaming thing. Last week, I reviewed Greg Matola's delightful Confess Fletch and Baz Luhrmann's confounding Elvis, and I launched my second giveaway. Paid subscribers have until noon on Wednesday, September 21st to enter that, by the way. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Did you miss me writing about movies? I did. Come check it out. I think everything, yeah, every choice he makes in all of these films is so deliberate. Even the choice to shoot it. Um, I, I looked up a, a couple of quick quotes while while we were building this. And there's a quote he says about the propaganda that he uses. And the reason he chose to frame it in 2012 is that it um, it's designed to be an echo of that time. Uh, and here's his quote, all the propaganda you hear on the radio in the film is the real background we Russians lived in from 2012 to 2015, because the main action takes place during six days in October of 2012. And then we see the characters after several years in 2015, when all these tragic events between Russia and Ukraine have happened, they're just the real background we experienced in those days. And I think that ties to the, the evocation of Chernobyl and, and Ukraine itself as something that has been destroyed over and over by either Soviet or Russian decisions and so much of what Putin seems to be doing is carrying out the the steps that he thinks will restore the glory of the former Soviet Union without having to be communist and then turning it into a dictatorship. So then Zviagensev shows us the ruin that was caused by the Soviet Union. Yeah. So like built into the uh, movie is the answer to the argument that is also not in the movie. And I just think that is that is, this is my new obsession is uh, because, and frankly, it started with Loveless. When I saw Loveless in the theaters, when it came out, I, I, I didn't understand it on a conscious level, on a subconscious level. I fully, I felt I fully understood it. 
you know? And it took me a number of viewings to really kind of make what I was feeling conscious. But that is, that is my favorite kind of filmmaking where you know what it's about. No one's ever telling you what it's about. And then no one could ever, you know, in a court of law prove that that's what it's about, you know? Yeah. I, I think that is so hard to do. And it's the most effective because it just interacts directly with your subconscious, you know? And, uh, there's a, I mean, maybe we'll get this, get here, you know, later on, but you know, the, the, and this is, this is a spoiler, but what, what happened was, um, you know, they, the spoiler alert is they don't find the kid, you know, or do they? Because towards the end of the movie, there's a scene where, um, they are called, the parents are called to a morgue to look at a, you know, child's body that has been brought in and they have this you know they they, the dialogue on the page is essentially that's not our son he had a mole on his chest that's definitely not him you know and when i and when i watched the movie i you know they they show you a quick glimpse of this corpse and it's pretty grisly you know but i kind of explained the uh, the parents strong emotional reaction to the how grisly the corpse is yeah and then later on my perhaps third viewing i realized that it actually is their son and that they are 100 percent in denial at that moment because to admit that it's their son is to finally admit the 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 that they have been so complicit in what happened to him and so they just push it away, but their emotions can't, they, they, their emotions get the better of them. Their emotions are the telltale heart, you know? And uh, uh, that is, so I, I've, ever since really understanding that about the movie, I've become obsessed with this idea of a story in which the main event of the story is not in the movie. You know, that there's an omission that is the key to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's never referred to directly in the movie and it's never um, explained within the movie, but that is the thing that the movie's about. I think that's so interesting. And it's, a, it's, I, I receive it as a challenge, you know, as a fellow filmmaker who, you know, looks up to Vyagintsev and what he's doing to kind of go deeper and try to make my own storytelling uh, less expository and less uh, sort of, uh, um, and trust the audience more. Just trust the audience more across the board. I think. I think I have. I have, especially with my film, God's Country. Like it was uh, uh, very much influenced by Leviathan and Loveless, in the sense of wanting to experiment with how much we could not tell the audience information. <laughs> and I trace it back to that understanding about Loveless. Wow. Well, and the short story on which God's Country is based is very, very spare. Um, but also you've changed almost everything about it. I, I know you you shot a short film that was closer to the original text uh, with Raymond J. Barry playing the lead character. And now in your new version in the feature, it's Tendiway Newton, which changes literally everything about the mechanics of the story and the assumptions that we have about the character by by casting a woman of color, you completely invert the idea that it's a it's a middle-aged, late middle-aged professor who's taken early retirement. And now it's just somebody who does not want to be bothered uh, for whatever reason she carries with her. Right. I mean, it's all that it's everything you've said that the inciting incidents are things that happen before the credits even roll at the beginning. Yeah. All the relevant, 
like the bat, her backstory is extremely important in the, in our adaptation. Um, in our, in our story, we do eventually find out elements of her backstory, but, sure. um, you know, the, the idea that you, you know, for example, the, the, um, the film starts, she's just, her mother who she has been sort of taking care of has recently passed away. And, um, part of what she's, you know, doing is going through that process of sort of going through her mother's stuff and trying to figure out what her kind of closed the relationship in a way, um, trying to figure out what her relationship to her mother actually is now and what her new role is going to be. Um, but you actually don't know that it was the mother that died until about 25 minutes into the movie. You just see her doing the activities. Yeah. And so our conversation, uh, myself and my writing partner, Shay Obana, was to kind of try to understand what the audience would be understanding as they went through the movie. So initially, you know, someone died and you know, this is a middle-aged woman. So you, I think a lot of people in the audience will assume it's her husband. And so then we use that for a little while. Then someone says, um, I'm glad she's not suffering anymore. And you perk up, I think, at the word she, going, oh, that's not her husband. So then the question was, who do they think it is now? Who does the audience think died now? And so, you, you know, we sort of tried to keep that curiosity going as a way of drawing you into the movie and, and making you, you know, help solve the mystery of who these characters are and what has happened. And like, I think that kind of withholding of information actually draws the audience closer to the movie. And, um, cause you know, another way of doing it is like when she comes into her house for the first time, just put a portrait of her and her mother on the mantle, you know, sure. and like, that is the easy way to do it. But, you know, I think seeing movies over the course of my life and just developing my preference of, I don't want to be talked to by the movie. Like I'm stupid. You know, I want to, I want the movie to trust me to, you know, do the work and I enjoy doing it. And I think, um, you know, I think I, a lot of these turning points for me as a filmmaker are related to seeing <laughs> Andres Villagensev's movies, which is again, why it was so hard for me to pick one. I, I, uh, you know, I love them all. Oh, I mean, we can cover the entire cinema if you want. I, I, we didn't even get back to The Return. I wanted to point out that it's only just struck me now that the story of two young brothers trying to please an absent father is like all about Russia and the the yeah. yearning for the strong leadership of the Soviets that that was taken away presumably yeah. during the 90s and the switch to, com to uh, full-on capitalism and then seeing what happens when your father returns and he's an absolute monster. Yes. Well, and, and then, and uh, so the brilliant thing about it is as storytellers, a lot of times what happens is you feel like you have to try to make a decision about what the story is about. <laughs> and Zvi Gensev manages to make it about all the things. And it, and the, the way he does that is by f allowing it to function on this level of fairy tale. You know, again, it's like such a high concept idea. It's the long lost father shows up in these kids' lives. They've never met him before. And he wants to take them on a fishing trip. And the movie is the story of their fishing trip. And uh, and again, like, you know, major spoilers, but um, the, the, it's, it's a, it's a, there's actually no spoilers. I should just say. There's no, no, you can't spoil it. Yeah. Because it's all about the way he does, tells the story. I mean, it's so enjoyable just to be in the worlds that he creates, but as bleak as they are. <laughs> yeah. But, 
but it's not it's not just that the father is a monster because the you know he's an authoritarian he is the classic authoritarian this father and it's an incredible performance by this actor Konstantin Lavrenenko who is just indelible like i think of his performance in this movie uh all the time um it's like a stand it's like a gold standard for me uh but at the end it turns out the imagined father never existed you know like there is a so he's able to tell two stories at the same time one where the father comes back and is revealed to be an authoritarian not worthy of of uh the sort of love that these kids had for their imaginary father mm -hmm. and then going through the story at the very end there's a there's a moment where they kind of realize that the father never existed and they decide they, the 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 one um the one brother says to the other i mean they're looking at a photograph that they that used to have their father in it and now it doesn't and the the one kid says the other kid hide it and it it's just like a perfect encapsulation of our relationship to these sort of mythical you know figures of our past our histories that we you know revere but are actually you know dictators and uh, authoritarians and you know uh, criminals um and uh, you know we just continue to lie to ourselves because we prefer the the fantasy yeah and i do think that the theme you, you mentioned that it's impossible to spoil one of his films and it it's true that the theme that runs through all of his films is that the world is the same when it ends as it was when the film started and that is incredibly despairing that the, the yeah. movies are not happy about this right it's not an ironic well there you go it's absolute crushing misery and empathy for the people who are in these worlds trying to make their way through them like Xenia yeah. and Boros are they're not good people really they've neglected their child until he evaporated but they're not they're fully human is what they are yes exactly we are allowed to understand how they got there yeah they're very complex they're people who have made lots of mistakes who's who recognize that sometimes and and deny that sometimes they're both very selfish people, but aren't we all, you know? Uh, and the interesting thing about, and again, this was a very, very much an inspiration for me with God's Country is there's a story that happens within the narrative, but then there's, and that could be very bleak, like in these, uh, in these films, like Leviathan and, and Loveless are not, you know, date night movies. <laughs> uh, they are incredibly profound philosophical meditations that, you know, kind of go to very despairing and nihilistic places, but they feel very true, you know? And our movie is somewhat similar. Like, I'm not, that's probably not going to sell any tickets for me to say that, but like, it's trying to be about very important things, but fully dramatized in a human story. But there's also the story of the film and the audience. There's the story within the movie and there's the story of the film and the audience. And that that story can actually be very hopeful, even if the the narrative that's being told is very bleak. And this is the function of tragedy, I believe. And this is why I think it's so amazing to have people finally seeing this movie in a theater as a group, because something different happens when it's 100 people in a, in a dark room going through this very heightened and and devastating experience together it's very cathartic seeing it with an audience is actually very cathartic and strangely enough like our movie is pretty bleak but people come out of it thrilled 
<laughs> they're like like everyone's so effusive afterwards because it it it, it is I, I hope because it feels true to them and they feel like they're not alone anymore. And I, that's how I feel when I watch um, Loveless. Like it's just absolutely devastating. And I don't actually have much shared experience with those characters, but uh, it also feels so true and so valuable and so applicable to um, so many different contexts. And I just, it's a movie you can return to over and over again and find new and important things. So that would be a perfect ending for this episode, except that we also kind of need to talk about Zygensev's actual health because he had a, apparently a terrible reaction to the Sputnik COVID-19 vaccine in the summer of 2021, went into the hospital and has not come out to my knowledge. I haven't been able to find anything. Yeah, he, he was he was um he he was in a medically induced coma for I believe months, mm-hmm. but was successfully brought out of the coma. Uh, eventually and i believe he did have really serious um like damage to his lungs and stuff like that i the other thing is it's very hard to know what is really going on um because you know russia being russia and also um i think he was transferred to germany at some point yeah he's been in germany for a while uh the last piece of information i could find was a russian news story about his treatment in germany uh from may 2022 there's been no word since then yeah i mean it's very alarming obviously uh you know if you are gonna make um art to speak to the you know general public about the you know devastation being wrought by the autocratic regime you're absolutely uh uh in danger and i just hope that um you know he'll he'll be able to recover and make more movies because you know um he was he has just been on the rise as a artist for you know 20 years um yeah i don't i don't know what else to say about it but you know i can't wait for another zivia against that movie yeah i'm curious you think he'll make one about the medical system? I mean, would that be the logical place to go next? You no, know, I, I know that he had been um, he had been signed up to do a television project with HBO, I believe. Um, oh, I... Yeah, in English language uh, and produced by um, his Russian producer who has worked with him since the banishment, I believe. Uh, I did not know that. But yeah, he he was he was. I think preparing to do that and then the pandemic started and now things have I'm sure been derailed. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he was kind of, he had reached that point with Loveless where he'd been nominated twice in a row for best foreign film. And uh, I think he was, you know, he was going to have his breakout moment onto the sort of, I don't know, whatever you want to call it sort of into the American film industry, which frankly, I don't know if that's a, that would have been a good move anyway, but we'll find out. I mean, I just want more work from him. Uh, so I hope, I hope he's going to recover. My thanks to Julian Higgins, whose new film God's Country is in theaters in the U.S. right now and opens in Toronto at the Tiff Bell Lightbox this Friday, September 23rd. In fact, Julian and his co-star, Yoris Yarsky, will be joining me for Friday's 7.15 p.m. screening. You should come too. Julian's not on Twitter, but you can find him on Instagram at filmjulian, all one word, and you can find theaters and showtimes for God's Country at godscountryfilm.com. All one word, no apostrophe. You can find Loveless on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, and it's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, 
S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 45 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like that, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.